Welcome to the Unchanging Education Podcast. I am Dan Clemens. This is Season 3, which is self-same to THEM, my acronym for the major thinkers considered here. So this is THEM, Part 2. And in THEM, Part 2, we move from T, T.S. Eliot, to H, Hannah Arendt. In this episode, I editorialize a great deal and quote directly from a rent sparingly. So what I'm going to try to do is to repeat, um, which is to say to restate the quotations when I come across them. So there will be repetition, especially of a particular quote that revolves around the general idea is that if we love children enough, we will let them inherit our world. And the reason I want to focus on this is in part because of its difficulty. And it's so difficult because it's so foreign to uh, an incredibly powerful idea in education that, well, this world is bad and so we can't let young people today just take over and take on and continue this world. They have to start uh, the world anew, right? There has to be, I mean, phrases like the Great Reset or Year Zero aren't quite perfectly applicable in the context, but what Arendt is suggesting is precisely the opposite of one of the most prevalent ideas in education today. And so, again, um, that makes it difficult, and I, I try to unpack it in several different ways, as you will see. But again, it's seen as a, as a loving thing to not continue or extend the world as it is through the next generation. That there has to be some, uh, you know, some great refusal or a, a great demarcation whereby, you know, the old world just wasn't good enough. And so it has to be radically revolutionized, right? And that that is, let's say, sold as something that's very loving. That the world as it is, is itself not loving or not compassionate or is hateful. And so it has to be something like, you know, the, the entire status quo of culture and civilization has to be jettisoned. Again, I mentioned this, a great refusal, a great reset, um, a year zero, something like that. So I want to just start with this general reminder. Again, TVSC, Teacher Versus Student-Centered Learning. And one of the ways that I've um, tried to introduce this distinction is by contrasting the classic three R's, which I associate with TC, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, to some sort of new student-centered SC uh, three R's. And there have been slight variations, but basically the three, the new three R's I always think of are relevant, responsive, and radical. The three R's, as they were understood, are now more often reduced to a bundle of skills rather than glorified as great historical achievements. I think I've already mentioned a few times that 
Um, this will, eventually we'll be getting to Neil Postman and the idea that every course, every field or discipline that's taught to students from you know geography to, to, to biology needs to be taught in its own historical context, that every subject that's learned includes the learning of that subject's own history, a kind of a historicized um, pedagogy and, and a historical, historically informed curriculum. So it may be strange to think of the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, you know, these fundamental or kind of elementary basics of any education, to think of them as great historical achievements. But this brings us to the big picture, that students have to be thought of and also thus come to think of themselves as being part of or as participating in some greater or grander historical continuity that is being transmitted to them that they are inheriting. And that this ultimately is preferable to any sort of dehistoricized skills or outcomes focus. Because the one sets students up for this task of cultural or even civilizational renewal that we gradually build them up to this renewal. So this is going to be an important idea um, for a rent. And that the other one doesn't. That we have to start to, bit by bit, prepare these students for this sacred charge to become the new stewards of the world. And that they inherit a culture that will facilitate the inheritance of the entire world as such. So, just as education, that children, like via education, children are neither idle, as they may have been in a, in a pre-modern context, neither idle nor engaged in laborious toil, as in a kind of Dickensian industrial revolution type, type modality. So, neither idle nor engaged in laborious toil. So, education is a monumental achievement in an imperfect civilization. And I'll talk about this a little bit more to make it more clear, but that we moved from pre-modern idleness, children and their long period of dependency. Um, and then, and that was, I mean, overwhelmingly, that has characterized the experience of the, the young or the new or the immature generation in relation to the mature generation. And then for really only a brief time, laborious toil uh, replaced idleness in it really in, for, for a fairly brief period of time. And I'm again using this Dickensian example, but perhaps not as brief. I mean, perhaps we like to think of it as being over, whereas, um, you know, we can easily be reminded to remind ourselves of child labor and sweatshops and, and things of this nature. But those, um, those, both of those modalities have ultimately been replaced in terms of what we think the best solution is of what we do with this long period of dependency. 
that we don't see that I, I don't think any adult in our civilization would see either idleness or toil as the as the best answer or as the best solution. And so I think that it's one of the few things that we really agree upon almost uh, unanimously. And that largely explains this enthusiasm for education, that we don't want children to be idle and we don't want them to be uh, engaged in laborious toil, that we want them to be educated. And interestingly, education seems to combine the best aspects of both um, and, the, and the worst aspects of neither. So going back to this idea of setting students up for some sort of some sort of a renewal that will become their their charge, that not only do they inherit a kind of a culture that prepares them, um, but that they inherit the world after, and that the culture is like a kind of you could say operating system that will enable them to be able to take on this challenge that is the world itself, and. So certainly there's a question about, you know, what is education? And this is sort of a good foundation that education is simply the best answer we have to what we might call the problem of children and their lengthy period of dependence. But I'm noting here that there is a concern about, like as it pertains to student-centeredness, and an education that becomes somehow related to social engineering and about, they said, insofar as it is related to like the buying of products. And that activism is in a way the number one product that's being sold. And this is a problem because, I mean, in this, in this, uh, you know, social engineering activistic student-centered mode, it's clear that education in that sense is not and cannot be a world apart, and it cannot be timeless in any sense of, again, something that has existed and is existing and will exist, but is irreducible in its contemporaneity, in its timeliness. So we could say that um, education is, in a way, a synthesis. Uh, like I said, the best of both and the worst of neither, idleness or toil. Again, pre-industrial revolution or pre-modern um, idleness. And then industrial revolution, uh, toil, just simply meaning work or labor, um, child labor. Which, again, certainly historically is not concluded um, throughout the world. But the idea here is that this is just simply speaking to the speaking to what education is. And when I say a synthesis, what we do is we've taken this long period of dependency and education seeks to make it highly productive yet also highly safe. So highly productive, like, you know, 
like we saw in the Industrial Revolution, that children can work. They can be productive. Yet, I think that just in terms of the the kind of uh, the the soul of civilization and um, you know what parents almost universally want for their children, um, that there was something unsettling about it too, though it was a kind of a revelation, and I think precipitated this new way of thinking that you know this long period of dependency really can be productive, but we don't want it to be productive in this way. Um, in some kind of, um, you know, any kind of dangerous, repetitive-type task. I mean, some repetition is necessary, but that it should be, you know, continually increasing. There should be something something gained or, of course, something learned, right? So education is highly productive, um, but, you know, unlike idleness and like toil, but it's also highly safe like idleness, but unlike toil. I mean, it's not really reasonable to expect children to to be at work safely or to work safely, per se. Um, just, just they seem like... As, as, as we know, children almost have to constantly be reminded and they have to be protected, uh, that their safety has to be uh, assured, or if not enforced... So anyway, like I said, this is just all sort of a reminder about why we love education as a kind of a, as a universal and potentially as a, that it should be a uniting kind of idea. And also a a reminder that of, of another way to think about education is that we love it because it's a singular invention. Whenever there's a great, like a truly genius invention that makes, you know, not to be hyperbolic, but that makes everything better for everybody, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's a universal human achievement that we, that, that we're enthusiastic about and that we get behind and that, that reminds us of something um, essential. So education is an invention just as the classroom is a technique, which will be discussed much later. So uh, we can celebrate education as a most enlightened and elegant solution to the so-called problem of children. And I think it's instructive to look back on how we got here and how we got to this kind of conclusion, like this, almost like an answer to the riddle of children. All of this suggests, however intuitive it may sound, a minority view about education today, or even a much maligned view. Education as a transmission, not so much of capital T tradition, but of lower, like little t traditions, plural, that one teacher usually transmits only one. Okay, some sort of uh, knowledge tradition to be received by students. And this is seen in the education world as a loathsome and offensive pedagogy. Right? This is teacher-centered or, I mean, it participates in the guild structure of the master-apprentice. Also, it is called perennialism. 
and it suggests that education is always dealing with the same old problems, and the cultural function and the benefit of education remains constant. Arendt suggests that we have to love the young enough to invite them into this extant world such as it is. The idea, the opposite of this, that instead of saying, you know, we love the young and we invite them into this extant world such as it is, that this would largely perhaps be mistaken as not being loving, whereas the more loving disposition would be to say, you know, to the young, you get your own world, you make one, and that this one is closed. So I think with Arendt, what we're trying to do is to, I guess, to re-invert this. this idea that we love children enough not to inflict this world upon them right and that 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 is itself a change and it has to be changed back the messaging that the young must instead create a new present and future and that the world is generally bad not only demotivates or causes depression and terrifies or causes anxiety but it separates the teacher and the learner so you have to create your own world because this world is bad i'm suggesting that demotivates and terrifies and separates teacher and learner and i don't mean to put you know everything about student or the you know the epidemic of mental ill health among students to put it you know at any one particular thing it implies that the student should not learn from the corrupted now and cannot apprentice a rich past, but must be gods unto themselves. This, to me, is a good example of being so progressive that we delimit progress as such. It slays the authority of the teacher as one who can reveal riches and richness, situating the teacher as a product of backwardness. And so then what becomes of education? Again, I'm going to recycle the phrase. What we do is that we inadvertently, perhaps, we dampen the ardor. That we suggest that there is no beauty to be admired in the world of education or learning. And so, you know, who cares? We have to love them enough to welcome them into our world as we were welcomed into the world of those before and some Canadian flavor here, we must not break faith with those who die. John McRae. So Arendt in Crisis in Education uh, notes, well, or asks, have we given up? That our schools are not to be trusted places of learning and thus become mere places of socialization that basically take on the role of parent while the parents work and even while the parents play more. But mostly working more. And again, we consider this inflationary problem that elementary school is the new daycare, and that high school is the new elementary school, and university is the new high school. 
that basically you have to get a, a diploma in this in order to, um, in order to, in a sense, not not work with your hands or not do manual labor. Um, that it's seen as a new kind of uh, basic requirement for work life. A crisis becomes a disaster only when we respond to it with preformed judgments, that is, with prejudices. Such an attitude not only sharpens the crisis, but makes us forfeit the experience of reality and the opportunity for reflection it provides. So, if we have an education in crisis, ultimately it's up to us whether or not it becomes a disaster based on how we react to the crisis. It may or may not become a disaster. If we react in such a way that we sharpen the crisis, we're certainly inviting disaster. And that we don't gain or learn from the experience. And much of this centers around a question about what should education do? And all of the new ideas, it seems, have introduced a crisis and may have brought us already to a point of disaster in education. And a lot of these new ideas, for example, that education should offer a solution for poverty and oppression. Um, poverty or inequality, I'm kind of using somewhat interchangeably, I suppose. Um, and also that you know, education should promote a positive self-concept and self-esteem and perhaps more recently that education should promote social justice diversity equity inclusion and that it should solve for problems like racism and sexism and even privilege and patriarchy and i already mentioned oppression and i'll, I'll come back to talk about this and and to what extent it's reasonable that education should do these things um, if it should be more focused on these things or more focused on academics or if it, can, if it can somehow balance everything and the reasons why we think that it can or can't. But before I turn the page, I want to come back to this idea of that we have to love the young enough to invite them into this extant world, into the world as it is or such as it is. And again, it's it's a it's an idea that I've struggled with and struggled to articulate my intuition that it is such an important idea. So, I was thinking first that we make a fatal error in thinking that well to love kids or students that if we really that basically the, the fatal error is that there's a fake kind of love that says that, you know, that we love the kids or students too much to let them inherit this bad world. And that this is what leads to the change agent thinking. Right, but I'm using like, you know, scare quotes like that we quote unquote love kids too much to let them inherit this bad world. And therefore they have to become change agents. And that the correction of this fatal error is that they have to be seekers, which makes sense in terms of 
they're they have to be students fundamentally and and whatever what what precisely a good student or good studentship is it does it seems incongruous with um, being a revolutionary and so for the correction is that we have to let I mean students as seekers let the good in the world and let the world's past change the worst in them that they use what's good in the world and in the world's past that is history um, and at all of the various histories of all the various disciplines and they let the world and everything that that it contains change the worst in them and so they become changed agents that they are in a sense acted upon through an education rather than an education that simply wants to make them be the actors that are acting upon the world right so it's not actually loving to send young people out in the world to change it strangely perhaps at least um when this is first introduced that it's much more loving to invite them into the world and that students in the world benefiting from the world and from let's just say world history that they become changed and that this change that occurs within them is more valuable to them and to the world than any notion that they are, need to be the one who changes who, who changes other things right again the, the agent or the cause of change that they need to be changed that change has to be acted or enacted upon them rather than they be the ones instituting changes so in an educational sense what i'm suggesting is that this this correction that students be seekers of finding what in the world and in history can um, or in in the canon in the literary tradition of a liberal arts education and that that will change them and that this is a kind of a, a true love <laughs> whereas the other i'm setting up you know this a sort of a fake kind of a love it's saying, you know, we love you so much and this world is bad. It's not good enough for you. So we're not going to give you this world. You have to recreate your own world. And that's, that. that there's a kind of a, a, a phony kind of love there. Or an inverted kind of love. So why is that not love? Right? And why is this a fatal error? Right? That, you know, I love my kids too much to let them inherit this bad world. And that's because of love. I want them to be change agents. And that's all rooted in love. Why is it not rooted in love then? Simply because it's too hateful. It's too predicated upon or too animated by a hatred of the world, of what is. And since it's, since it's too mired in hate, it simply cannot be love. Just logically, nothing can can be what it is and be its opposite at once. And so not to be a change agent, again, but to be a changed agent. And I immediately thought of to become human or to become a human being. 
that this is seen as a kind of a process that somehow um, has some theological connotations. You could think of soul forging, that their souls have to be forged in a way through education, uh, versus this change agent's narrative that is dominant today in student-centeredness that seems to participate in the Rousseauian assumption of some kind of perfect human nature that we should not act upon and that we should just let these, you know, benevolent change agent child creatures, uh, you know, remedy the world. Or when I say to become human, I'm also thinking of Jean Vanier, becoming human. And so this teacher-centered correction to the fatal error that students are seekers and they find in the world ways to change the worst things in themselves. And again, in this kind of, this quest for perfectibility and becoming human, this is life-affirming in that it asks, how can the world perfect you? All the, all the insight, wisdom, knowledge, etc. that can be gained from the world and how the world can inform you and perfect you. Now, of course, the perfectibility is, again, something that we chase. We're, it's a pursuit of a human ideal. It's not as though, you know, some, it's not like teacher-centered education is going to just make everyone perfect. Of course not. But in that sense, again, it's loving or it's loving in a truer sense that it's true love because it's not hateful and it's life-affirming in focusing on how the world can perfect you rather than the this student-centered anti-inheritance, anti-transmission um, that is, I would say, let's just say low-key hateful, even though it, it constantly um, refers to itself as loving and caring and compassionate, but that it's not life-affirming, but life-denying in, in, in the way that it asks, how can you perfect the world? Because it's, it's simply, it's too much to put upon children and it, I would say, invariably sets them up for failure and disappointment. Okay, kids, time for you to go out there and make the world perfect now. And again, I, I, I've just been thinking about how, um, and this is certainly too reductive and too simplistic, but going back to this idea of depression and anxiety. Right, and the messaging of education and how that message can play a role in this. That, again, that the young people, that these change agents, that they have to create a new present and a new future because the world is bad. That this is meant with the best intentions to inspire them, but it doesn't. That it demotivates them. That there's nothing in the world that they can glean and that there's really, the whole world is so imperfect that there aren't really even any leaders or guides into some unknown future that they're being told to create. 
so it's not only demotivational, it's also terrifying. Because if they fail um, remaking the world, I, I don't even know what. I think they just have to be, they just have to become filled with you know, endless you know, vigor that no matter what, like they can't fail. They can't let this world continue to be some, you know, evil, oppressive hellscape. So I notice how that demotivates via depression, terrifies via anxiety, and separates teacher and learner. Thus making the whole business of education much harder and more alien. And even how it dampens the ardor yet again. Okay, still continuing to struggle with this notion of love that Arendt introduces here. Love, of course, is characterized by care or by tending, right? In saying, we transfer our world onto you. Again, we here is the, you know, the older generation transmitting this world inheritance to the the new, young, immature generation. And you must renew it. And you are the new steward. And I think there are two directives. The first is to keep it as good as it is. And the second is to improve it if you can. Keep it as good as it is. And second, if you can, improve it. And I'm suggesting that this is actually rooted in love. That, in a sense, I'm agreeing with Arendt here. Against what I see as the kind of common, the groupthink. The pseudo or fake love. That instead says, we cannot transfer this world to you. Because it's no good. You must create one. You're the new gods. And I suppose there's only one directive, which is to make it better than ours. Or maybe a secondary one could be, don't repeat our mistakes. And I suggest this is not rooted in love, but in a kind of hate. In a kind of collective self-loathing. Loathing and hate being, um, I'm considering them to be synonymous here. And then I recognize teacher centeredness and student centeredness here. Right, that there is a, I mean, that transmission and inheritance is fundamental to TC. And again, this love, this care, this, this uh, care, tending, stewardship, keeping the world as good as it is and improving it, if possible, or wherever possible, versus the SC that, again, is rooted in hate or resentment or self-loathing, that we do not pass this world on to you. You have to create one. You're the new gods, not the new stewards, and make it better than ours, rather than keeping it as good as it is. And it's not based on certainly not based on improvement, but just based on change. That change, any kind of change is good. If you conceive of the original as, as flawed enough. Mm -hmm. 
And so, again, these two different models that I think map onto TV and SC. TC and SC. TVSC. But don't repeat our mistakes, for example. Make this better than ours. and like Make your life better than ours. And don't repeat my mistakes. Putting in kind of a parental context. That the code becomes just don't do bad. Don't make our mistakes. Don't do bad. And that it's not necessarily hateful, but it's just loveless, that there's no love here, right? Don't do bad. And not doing bad does not inspire a vision of anything. Again, there's no perfectibility. There's no ideal here that's being pursued. Just don't do bad things. And I've always thought of how, of the negative language in terms of negation, uh, the new forms of character education often take. Um, you know, don't be sexist, don't be racist, don't, like, don't do all of the bad things that almost all of us seem to recognize as being very bad. Don't do them. It doesn't inspire any kind of ideal to pursue, right? It's just the absence of, of bad or the absence of evil that, again, I think that there's something... People need to, to strive to aim high for something and just having this constant reminder of like the worst kind of person and just not being that, that it does not inspire, that it's neither inspired nor inspiring. Versus the initial uh, model that I'm kind of characterizing is build on our successes. Sometimes we see this as standing on the shoulders of giants. And the, the code here is not don't do bad. It is put in, in positive active terms of do good, right? Build on the good that there is. Don't, don't build on the bad that there is. Um, improve as much as you can. And, that, and I'm associating, again, this with love because I think it is inspiring, right? To do good. To pursue that which is good and beautiful. not simply to avoid that which is bad and ugly in humanity. Okay, so coming back to this idea about what education should be doing, there's the, you know, from the traditional mission of a, of a liberal arts education into what we might consider more and more to be social engineering. And I don't want that, that to have a, a, a really a particularly um, foul connotation. Uh, it's just a sense that, you know, we can engineer a better society through education, um, which is one of the ways to think about student-centeredness, that it's not really based on some acquisition of uh, knowledge at first and then eventually wisdom as sort of the end goal. But when I say social engineering, I mean, it doesn't have to be as pejorative as brainwashing. Okay. So should education try to do all of these things? That we're going to educate everybody and we're going to, we're going to end racism and we're going to you know, end you know, poverty and 
all of these things that the education takes those things on and is still committed to you know an excellent you know classical kind of education or as i'll get into like trying to understand these the various permutations should that just become the main or primary job of education right again this new kind of character education and uh you know socially engineering a new kind of you know postmodern tolerant social reality and how do we prioritize these things are they is one more important than the other or are they perfectly equal and of course we also want to make people useful right we still want education to be vocational and there's a lot of talk about skills still in education and I think the thing that, that probably gets pushed up most is some, well, probably understandably, it's the most vague, the most, uh, the most vague or the most complex one to understand, which is that education also has to stimulate a life of the mind. And again, initiating minds into the great conversation and this intellectual inheritance. That that's probably the, the hardest thing to do and the, the least clear mandate, I suppose. And the constant changes in education remind us of the different political shifts every few years that moves us into a new direction. It is unsteady. Every generation abandons the old project of education and starts its own, which is to be abandoned by the next. And I suggest that we've had a hundred years of student-centeredness, and I think that a student-centered modality is more likely to be to be caught up in this ever-changing, constantly evolving present. And it may even be a feature rather than a bug. Thinking of the, the, you know, what we need is a permanent revolution in education. And this is um, my view that, in truth, we've had a hundred years of student-centeredness. And we have to look closely at the failures. And... We have, I mean, we have to be skeptical, of course, that, well, 100 years of student-centeredness, all the failures are only proof that we need more of it. And this is part of the epistemic catastrophe in education. I mean, uh, perhaps an unfair uh, critique, but we might say that, strangely or paradoxically, it seems that the more education wants to focus on mental health or to make it like a number one or top priority, it almost seems to coincide with a rise in mental illness, right? Like that we have to, basically the idea here is that we have to expect results, right? Education, you know, like a, any kind of slogan or nostrum that education is, committed to, um, you know, addressing the epidemic of mental illness. And when it does so, we should expect it, the problem to decline. So when education, in a sense, um, retasks or repurposes itself to something, then we need to expect results in that direction. Especially considering if it's de-emphasizing other things and that there's 
for example, what we might call learning loss in other regards, that, again, you just do not want to be in a situation where you're getting the worst of both worlds. We're going to stop doing something that we do fairly well and start to try to do something we don't know how to do but think is very, very important. And then if you're not good at the new important thing and you're neglecting the old thing that you were at least competent at, then everyone gets nothing. No one gets anything. And again, this also brings up, it reintroduces this, like this, thinking about the epistemic problem in education. That education at times, epistemically, seems so facile. Like, for example, the new, this emphasis on character education of being anti-hate. And it's certainly a worthwhile goal, but you have to put it in practical educational terms that, okay, so we're teachers, send us hateful students, and we will return to you benevolent children. There's simply no reason to believe that education can do this. I mean, as an educator, I can tell you, I don't know how to rid someone's heart of hatred and fill their hearts with love. Right, and if I were to pretend like I do, of of course I'm over-promising and under-delivering, which is the opposite of we want education to be doing. Especially if I'm going to prioritize this anti-hatred curriculum over something else that I could otherwise be doing well. Just as an example. Okay, so the fundamental premises and rationales are especially worth considering. On the surface, it seems that all of these, you know, modern problems uh, from inequality or inequity, racism, sexism, sexual abuse, assault, violence, um, rape culture, various phobias, um, you know, so if they're all rampant in a society that is also exclusionary and patriarchal, heteronormative, privileges, whiteness, and maleness. So, um, is this an accurate snapshot of our society? Right? Is all of this true? And again, we want some sort of falsifiability uh, or a, a, a falsifiability test. We want to avoid a kind of a a non-falsifiability problem. So, let's, uh, but but in any event, let's assume that it is. Let's assume that this is a, an accurate snapshot of, um, of our, our society, of the West in 2022. So, uh, we've got this very, frankly, bad society, right, that's plagued by all of these, you know, terrible problems. And then it's these problems that ultimately characterize uh, the present. But we, we could still ask reasonably, should that then be the focal point of teaching and learning, of what goes on in schools? Right? Even if, let's just say, for example, racism is the number one problem facing our society, is it necessarily the job of schools? Is there no other institution 
um, you know, whether it be from, I don't know, from uh, religions or to parenting, like some other institution. And should academic study be de-emphasized for the sake of some kind of a social justice curriculum? Or, again, if the two are meant to coexist um, in terms of prioritization, is it even 50-50? Is one more important than the other? Or, you know, which is meant to support the other? Or, I mean, is it left up to individual teachers to interpret their own job? That, uh, you know, if you and I each have a, have a child in grade three and, you know, one's at this school and the other's at that school, one is receiving the, you know, the the postmodern character education in, for example, anti-racism, and the other is receiving some sort of traditional knowledge curriculum, uh, you know, the three R's, the old three R's. And that, that, like, that the parents have no say over this kind of thing. Sorry, I realize I'm making kind of a school choice point here. But is it up to the individual teacher to, in an activistic kind of fashion or in an inactivistic fashion to again interpret their own their own function but there's a there's another problem here is that uh, again we're assuming that these evils do uh, let's just call this a thought experiment all of these terrible evils permeate all of our society even if it's only unconsciously and then we would seem to here have to move to the to the second point that education is not corrupted by these evils that permeate all of society that they somehow do not also extend to education if education can do something to fix them or do something to solve them right that if if these evil permeate all of society including education then i don't see any reasonable argument that education can fix them i mean if education is completely corrupted by them or polluted by them then education could only be a part of the problem. It couldn't be the solution. So there, I think there has to be, there's an implicit premise here that if these evils permeate society and education can fix them, that education is a kind of a pure bastion, that it's the only institution that has somehow resisted all of these evils and is thus in a situation to... Um, to, to set itself against these evils. And so then you can move to, to one of two other uh, third steps. One, that education can do this and academics both. Right, this social engineering towards a new kind of tolerant harmony. Or... Um, you know, the, the other version of the, the third point could just be that education ought to do this as its prime directive, um, not really in a balance, but that it's acceptable to us that education do this kind of social engineering type work and that it not focus on academics, that academics can somehow be picked up elsewhere, some other, um, you know, another in, another social institution, I suppose could just take on that role. That all kind of academic knowledge-based curriculums, that that all would have to be completely privatized. So again, I'm talking about public education here, right? 
that public education is going to fix the evils of society because it's not, you know, destroyed, it's not itself destroyed by them. And then it's either going to balance academics and social engineering, or it's going to abandon academics for social engineering. Either way, we can ask the epistemic question, uh, how strong is this proposition? That society is evil, but education, despite being a part of society, is not evil, and that it can rid society of evil while educating everyone. Or that it can rid society of evil, but it can't also educate everyone. But even still, even in that, that, that kind of weaker, less utopian conclusion, we can still ask of either variation. For one, how long has this been tried already? Like, how long have we been trying to do this? Or operating in that set of assumptions? And how successful is it? And when I say how long has it been tried, I'm, I suppose I may, it may seem that I'm assuming that we have indeed already started to, to try it. Whereas, you know, someone could argue that, no, we haven't actually tried to set education against the social ills. But uh, I think that it's clear that we have. I realize that I haven't argued for it, but I'm going to have that as, I suppose I'll have to admit that that's sort of an implicit assumption, that this is already underway, that it is being tried. And that thus we can ask, you know, how long it's been tried and how successful is it? Again, because we have to... We have to demand competency from these, from from an institution so big and so important as education. And I want to get into this byproduct problem. And I will just in just a moment here. So, for Arendt, the pathos of the new consists of an astounding hodgepodge of sense and nonsense to accomplish, under the banner of progressive education, a most radical revolution in the whole system of education. Is education in need of a revolution? The disappearance of common sense in the present day is the surest sign of the present day crisis. In every crisis, a piece of the world, something common to us all, is destroyed. The failure of common sense, like a divining rod, points to the place where such a cave-in has occurred. Okay, so, as stated, I want to talk about this byproduct problem. Which is this idea, I think I've mostly, I've introduced this really only in the context, I think, of critical thinking. That, you know, since we want someone ultimately at the end of a, of a long education to be a great thinker. That, well, if that's what, if that's the end goal, then why don't we start to try to build that in earlier and earlier with more and more intention. And my argument is that it that that it basically doesn't work. That you cannot just get to some desired end um, just by making it 
intentional, meaning that you want it or that you want more of it or that you want it sooner. Um, the idea is that it's just sort of... It's something that grows in a, in a way that's kind of indirect or passive as a result of an otherwise very good education. So it's kind of a strange idea, but anyway, think of a highly educated, um, highly developed intellect, someone who's, you know, achieved or realized, if not even maximized their, their intellectual potential. Such a person would not be thought of as, you know, being quote unquote deplorable, right? They're well educated and well read and worldly. But these things, these are secondary byproducts of being really well educated, right? Like that, that you've, you've got a great education and almost as a result of that, but not, not as a direct consequence that there's something intangible here about being able to think well and being thoughtful and being cosmopolitan, but that a person with these, like a person with a strong or solid education is likely to have the kinds of um, attitudes that I think society largely desires, but they're not achieved by directly pursuing those things. So to make as hallmarks of, um, of, of a well-educated person, I mean, this is after a long period of study. Not just long, but extensive. And again, being, you know, tolerant and open-minded. I'm going to use these terms. That these are byproducts of someone who's studied a lot of, again, of great thinkers, great ideas, and great advances in various fields, and, you know, of kind of a broad education. And But it's being, you know, that this well-educated person who at the end, re reaches a point where there is this kind of indefinable thing of like, well, it's just of being well-educated or articulate or eloquent. But they did not arrive at that by direct study of how to be smart, how not to be racist. That there's this, some kind of passive benefit here that education opens up the world and opens up the history of the world. And so I think the critique here is that there's an attempt to commodify these, what I'm calling passive byproducts of a great education. That when you complete your education, you have these kinds of intangible things, like I said, you know, being uh, worldly and well-read and being cosmopolitan or, you know, thoughtful. That you cannot recenter education on them directly. That trying to do so will just lead to some, will lead to doom. So, again, it's likely that people with, for example, advanced degrees are, are again, likely to be very tolerant and open-minded, 
but it's not because of courses in or books on being tolerant and being open-minded. See, that it's not a direct correlation, that there's something indirect or passive that occurs through receiving, again, I realize I'm leaving undefined whatever we would consider to be a great education. But getting a great education will, in the end, produce someone who is, you know, again, to use a different example, not just tolerant and open-minded, but but can think critically, right, is, is a critical thinker. But again, not because of their many years studying critical thinking. It's just from applying their minds to something and thinking more and more and more. Okay, let me keep moving here. The premise of, um, of a social justice curriculum seems to be that we need to create a socially just society before we can... Um, that it has to be something that goes beyond just vocation and great conversation, right? That this practical vocation of useful citizens and also some ideal, again, or the perfectibility of, of people through, um, through civilization itself that it's interesting actually that social justice doesn't really seem to fit neatly within either of these things within education as sort of a life for the mind nor in terms of making practically useful citizens that can you know fill a vocation and do a job well And I'm also, I think I've indicated my interest in this counterfactual that um, if, we, if we had not untasked liberal education with its original purpose, uh, let's say in the 60s, right, and retasked it to these social engineering type tasks, um, again, initially, I think that the best example is probably poverty, uh, solving it or, or ending it somehow. And by, again, by focusing directly, again, by not allowing, not thinking, well, if we have a really well-educated society, it's bound to be more just and more equal. But by specifically focusing on intentionally making it an explicit or an express goal that education is now going to focus on justice and equality even at the expense of a of you know traditional or classical education but again what are the indicators of success or failure because again if those kinds of things can be achieved passively then let's just have a well-educated population a well-informed electorate and that will and strangely that justice and equality will over time, gradually take care of themselves, right? Anything, any passive benefit, any byproduct is extremely efficient. But if you make those passive byproducts the, the, the focus, even the main focus, you may actually be stopping 
the process that was creating them. And now you're no longer doing the main task that was producing the byproduct too. And again, you, you end up with this incredibly inefficient thing where you're not getting the things that you've made the new direct targets. Neither are you getting the benefits of the old way. Okay. Um, every child must enter high school. And this goes, this is back to the inflation point. In the high school, therefore, is basically a kind of continuation of primary school. As a result of this lack of a secondary school, the preparation for the college course has to be supplied by the college themselves, whose curricula, therefore, suffer from a chronic overload which in turn affects the quality of work being done there. A teacher, so it was thought, is a man who can simply teach anything. His training is in teaching, not in the mastery of a particular subject. It has resulted in recent decades in a most serious neglect of the training of teachers in their own subjects. Thus, the teacher's authority is no longer effective. So again, no longer do teachers derive any passive or indirect authority from the fact that they really know what they're talking about and they can answer almost any questions about whatever they're teaching. This, has to, this authority has to be replaced by so-called classroom management techniques or strategies. And, I mean, not only is there a decline in authority in this, really, I would argue the traditional sense of authority derives from content knowledge, from, like, mastery or expertise uh, beyond what any student can reasonably hope to achieve. And so, without that form of authority some other form of management has to take its place. But the other problem is that it's less interesting to learn from someone who you sense doesn't really know a lot or might not even know more than you. And this is why we have to be skeptical of, of phrases like, you know, I'm learning just as much from you as you are from me. In a, in a teacher-centered understanding, that would be an indication of some sort of a failure. Anyway, so teachers losing the authority that they might have had, um, and they come to lack that authority to compel learning. Because if you don't have a lot to teach, um, I mean, if you don't if you don't know a lot, you don't really have the same sense of urgency of how much you want to teach, how much you want to convey and get across. And again, think of um, Hige and just the emphasis on the relationship between the teacher and the content, the teacher and the material or the subject, the discipline, the 
You have to know it and you have to like it. That that is like such a such a renewing force in a teaching practice. And that that, again, indirectly has this incredible benefit for students. Instead, there's a new focus on not that the teacher engages with the students indirectively or passively through the content, through the material, but that the teacher has to have a direct relationship with the student. And the importance of that is emphasized. And the actual content, the material of learning is somehow um, secondary to that teacher-student relationship in a child-centered modality. So, at a bare minimum, we ought to have a very clear idea as to the costs and benefits of teachers who are content experts and those who are not, who might be, for example, um, social justice educators, something I associate mostly with character education. And anyway, how do those differences play out in the classroom, right? I mean, very simply, if, if you have different methods, different styles, different approaches, it's reasonable to ask which one is better. Now, one thing that could be done practically is practically um, a practical attempt at a solution might be to have two types of teacher education programs with principals able to hire either type, right? You have teacher-centered B-Ed or, or you know, ed schools, te teachers' colleges, teacher training, and student-centered and see see you know see which one wins in kind of a competition or you know in the marketplace in the in the the other suggestion here was simply just to anyone with a master's degree or a graduate degree can become a teacher without having to go to a teacher's college and that this would uh, i mean certainly this is more expeditious than you know opening up kind of competing uh, or at least uh, teacher training colleges with different um, you know with different educational philosophies but anyway uh, hiring highly better educated people to become teachers and exempting them from ed schools again that they would derive a, a kind of an intellectual authority through their connection to the content itself and again that there's something deeply human about you know that anyone and certainly including students of course students are humans and that there is this it's almost like the uh, the, the this kind of deep pre-modern hunter-gatherer listen to the experts realize that this that, that phrase is taken on a kind of a life of its own um, of the uh, the COVID uh pandemic but the sense of listening to an expert again that this kind of authority again it's precisely so effective because it's passive and that makes it efficient it's just a byproduct of someone who's teaching something that they know a lot about they there's already an inbuilt authority to their to their presence in the classroom that people feel like 
even their most kind of wild or speculative questions can be answered thoughtfully and that they they feel like they're they're getting a lot out of their the time that they're spending there and certainly i mean there there's a strong case that that may be um preferable to teachers who are largely now when i say ignorant i really just mean that they may not know they might not they might an ignorant teacher in this case could still be a wonderful teacher who knows a lot about child psychology, etc. But if they don't really know much about what they're actually teaching, then like that's all that's meant by this phrase of ignorant teachers who, in fact, game the attention of, of people, of students, via social psychological management techniques and strategies. Again, versus the old master-apprentice dynamic that you've got a master who knows everything really deeply, not just comprehends, but fully understands what they're talking about. And that there's something about that that people want to listen to. They don't have to resort to any tips or tricks. If you don't listen and you don't learn, that's its own punishment. Everyone else is listening and learning and you will fall behind, and that will be, I mean, that that's its own kind of justice. Okay, a couple more pages here. The present crisis in America results from the recognition of the destructiveness of these basic assumptions in a desperate attempt to reform the entire educational system, that is, to transform it completely. And so in response to the crisis and preventing disaster, what is needed is, for Hannah Arendt, educational restoration. So I think the way that the terms are used is that we need to restore education and a restored, only a restored education is able to prepare young people or new people she uses both young and new um, to renew the world so we need educational restoration for civilizational renewal okay so specifically to educational restoration and uh i'll, I'll get back to my early promise of uh, repeating these quotes so i'll go through it twice Teaching will once more be conducted with authority. Play is to stop in school hours, and serious work is once more to be done. Emphasis will shift from extracurricular skills to knowledge prescribed by the curriculum. Finally, there is even talk of transforming the present curricula for teachers so that the teachers themselves will have to learn something before being turned loose on the children. So you see that um, authority over play, or serious work over play, curriculum over extracurriculum, knowledge over skills, and that teachers have to learn something before 
they can be expected to go and teach something. Just implying they have to know what they're talking about before being turned loose on children. Um, I think there's a, a, a strong implication here that ignorant teachers can, in fact, do harm. I think that's indicated by being turned loose on children. That children are, in a sense, inflicted um, or that, that ignorant teachers are, are kind of uh, inflicted upon children who really ought to have knowledgeable teachers in the context of a, a, of a curriculum that is advancing said knowledge. So, one more time. Educational restoration, Henry Arendt. Teaching will once more be conducted with authority. Play is to stop in school hours, and serious work is once more to be done. Emphasis will shift from extracurricular skills to knowledge prescribed by the curriculum. Finally, there is even talk of transforming the present curricula for teachers so that the teachers themselves will have to learn something before being turned loose on the children. I mean, it just perfectly captures my uh, the whole spirit of unchanging education. Okay, what are the true reasons that for decades things could be said and done in such a glaring contradiction to common sense? And getting back to first principles here. Remember that the existence of children entails an obligation for every human society. And I think that there is an attitude I've discussed that I think that I, I diagnose as a kind of a, a mass reaction formation that there's a sense that, like, that this is the attitude that I sense. Our kids will never study and work as hard as Asians. So let's give up on that and focus on making them good, just, and moral. Just as soon as we figure out how. A sense of not directly competing with other, frankly, more teacher-centered, um, and maybe you might say more results-oriented educational cultures. And let's just try to be good at, well, let's start be the only ones doing something and then we'll be the best at that. And if we keep changing and we keep reinventing ourselves and we're constantly the only ones doing whatever we are doing, then you could argue that we're the best at it. But there's a more general crisis and instability in modern society. An education has two responsibilities. To introduce the child to a world that precedes him. That he must continue. That is the continuance of the world. And again, we get into this all too progressive discontinuation of the world. And how, if we really think it through, it's horrifying that instead we have to keep it afloat. Whereas this progressive discontinuation thinks that rather than keep it afloat, we're better off sinking the, let's say, oppressive patriarchy. But also for the growth, development, and life of said child in the world, a world that was there before him, that will continue after his death, in which he is to spend his life.
In these two unfoldings, we realize, just as the child needs protection from the world, so the world needs protection from the child, who must continue it rather than destroy it. So, again, the two unfoldings here, these are the two responsibilities, okay? And, again, in response to the crisis, in preventing disaster, education has two responsibilities, or two unfoldings. To introduce the child to a world that precedes him, that he must continue, and that is the continuance of the world. And also, secondly, to for the growth, development, and life of said child in the world. A world that was there before him, that will continue after his death, and in which he is to spend his life. Again, this continuity, right? This world was here before you, it'll be here after you, and you have this time that you have now. And again, in these two unfoldings we realize... Just as the child needs protection from the world, so the world needs protection from the child, who must continue it rather than destroy it. So, who must continue it? Now, in the world here, I think, is meant a whole civilization comprised of cultures, a language of many conversations, and also a conversation in many languages. So, re remembering, again, what I've called this, the all-too-progressive discontinuation of the world, and this sense that, well, for the mature, to say to the immature generation, we hate the world, and we're going to blow it up. And that will give you the freedom to make a whole new world from the, you know, rubble. And... Uh, I guess the, the counter-argument here is that this is simply not a message that's appropriate for kids. And also, against, like, directly opposite to the Rousseauian view of the world, right? As Arendt says, we, we just, we not only need to protect children from the world, we also need to protect the world from children. This is the opposite of the Rousseauian set of assumptions. Now, I may not exactly map onto a Lockean set of assumptions about human nature, as I've kind of set up Rousseau and Locke in this, in this opposite, that may not be perfectly, you know, philosophically apropos. But the indication here is, again, opposite or contra-Rousseau, the notion that the child is a born criminal. Because criminals don't follow rules, and no child is really born as a rule follower. All the rules that are followed have to be learned and taught and um, enforced and reinforced. So not only no, not only is the child a born criminal, but his existence is a problem for society. Just a problem in the sense of what are we supposed to do with all these young people? Who I think I used a Nietzsche quote much earlier on, maybe in season one about the, you know, that young people are basically useless. So what do we do with them, or what do we do about them? Well, we don't want them to just let them be idle. We don't want them to, you know, be worked to death in factories. 
we want them to be educated. We want them to be productive, but also safe. And that's just what education is. Education is at the intersection of productivity and safety, right? That, that we've learned from a lengthy time of, of you know, in pre-modernity. And then from a comparatively on that historical slice of time, um, you know, compared to toil, labor. So, private family life is the primary shield. But also, the century of the child is and has been upon us. Quote, Education became a world to serve the child, first and foremost. That's about as student-centered or as child-centered as it gets, okay? I'll start the quote again. Education became a world to serve the child, first and foremost, rather than guide the child in a different trajectory in becoming a child to serve the world in is what it was traditionally towards. Okay, so again, TVSC couldn't be more clear here, right? That the teacher-centeredness wants to guide children in a different trajectory, that they will serve the world, for example, as a as a good citizen. And that is, you know, more traditional, TC, traditional conservative. So keeping TVSC in mind, and we'll once, once again, education became a world to serve the child, first and foremost, rather than guide the child in a different trajectory in becoming a child to serve the world is what it was traditionally towards. So this sets up the, you know, the, the traditional wisdom that you, we want to bring these children up to be, you know, not just good and noble, but also useful, and that they have to, they have to be of service to the world, largely because of this long period of dependency where the world serves them. Right, like this long period of dependency already necessitates serving the the child, right? Um, and it's not so simple as you know a debt that has to re be repaid in any uh, kind of crude sense, but there that that should be somewhat laudatory and celebratory that it's true that there is ultimately yes. There is a debt to be repaid and that young people should be excited and energized by now I'm finally in the position where I'm able to to give um, as as much or even more than I've taken. And that there's there's a real nobility of spirit, right? That they should be embracing, uh, even anticipating. But that almost necessitates this attitude of going out into this, of being enchanted by the world and going out into this big, amazing world with so much to, you know, to learn and to see and to do and experience rather than orienting to the world as this big, bad thing that you have to change. Going back to a change agent versus a changed agent and acting versus 
allowing yourself to be acted upon by the world and all the learning that the world affords. For Arendt, this is all based on a profound misunderstanding of private and public life, as well as a decadent, fantastic fixation upon the inner needs and the inner nature of the child. This progressive modernization of education is, in actuality, a regressive barbarism. Quote, School is the institution that we interpose between the private domain of home and the world in order to make the transition from the family to the world possible at all. Attendance there is required by the public world. This is from Education and the Question of Renewal. And there's a lot of fashionable talk about a new conservatism. Again, in preventing mere... Uh, preventing a crisis from becoming a disaster, right? So Arendt uses a lot of these R words um, to renew, revive, revitalize. So renewal. For renewal, education must renew the common public world. The young and the new must renew the world. And for my part... Uh, I'm suggesting renewing education or educational theory through some kind of conservatism, right? just in the sense that pedagogy has become so one-dimensional and one-sided, uh, again, orthodox, and um, that it doesn't really permit a, a diversity of idea, that it's not heterodox or fails to be. Okay. We must give the new slash young what's good about the common world, history, they inherit, while allowing them to renew it as they see fit. Again, there's this admission here that it's not like a this inheritance transmission. It's not as it's not strict in the sense that it's not orthodox in a religious sense. This intergenerational negotiation is the essence of education or the special science of pedagogy for Arendt. Quote, What concerns us all and cannot therefore be turned over to the special science of pedagogy is the relation between grown-ups and children in general, or, putting it in even more general and exact terms, our attitude toward the fact of natality. The fact that we have all come into the world by being born, and that this world is constantly renewed through birth. Education is the point at which we decide whether we love the world enough to assume responsibility for it, and by the same token, save it from that ruin which, except for renewal, except for the coming of the new and young, would be inevitable. The ruin would be inevitable. And education, too, is where we decide whether we love our children enough not to expel them from our world, 
and leave them to their own devices, nor to strike from their hands their chance of undertaking something new, something unforeseen by us, but to prepare them in advance for the task of renewing a common world. I'll just reiterate the second part here. Education is the point at which we decide whether we love the world enough to to assume responsibility for it, and by the same token, save it from that ruin, which, except for renewal, except for the coming of the new and young, would be inevitable. And education, too, is where we decide whether we love our children enough not to expel them from our world and leave them to their own devices, nor to strike from their hands their chance of undertaking something new, something unforeseen by us, but to prepare them in advance for the task of renewing a common world. Common world, I think here again, is just reiterating this continuity of a world that preceded you, in a world that will continue after you, but a world that you are in now. According to Arendt, schools are where student transition from the post-home child and into the pre-work adult. Schools have to be this intermediary. Problems arise when a lack of clear identity and focus converge, as they may have in education. On the one hand, schools ought to, more than ever, mimic the student-post-child warm tenderness of home life, while at the same time offer the student-pre-adult rigorous skills-based job training. So the post-home child just means, you know... At first, you're just a child at home. You don't have any real public life or public existence in terms of your development. And so what happens from when, basically from the moment that a child leaves the home and enters into some kind of you know public existence with other human beings outside of the home, um, yet, so from that time to before, they enter the work life as an adult. And, you know, that is just what we call, that's basically what we call education. Now, more specifically, it's schooling, because education begins with socialization, and parents start educating their kids before they ever come to a school. But again, um, education is basically the best thing that we have um, for basically taking, uh, for preparing a child that first leaves their home to eventually entering the life of, you know, a a productive work life, a career. Um, Anyway, obvious thing. But but also, there's this, uh, I kind of discussed that there's um, a continuation of like the, especially early on, schools have that, warm kind of loving kind of vibe um that younger and younger like the teachers of younger kids are kind of are more nurturing and i think it's probably a good thing right that we we want to ease children into it 
And also, yeah, we want to, you know, give, it's very cliche in education, but we do want to, we want graduates of education to be ready to, you know, contribute to the workforce. But those are, in a way, the easiest things to to address because, again, when these kids first arrive from home, I mean, they obviously need they need something between a teacher and a parent, right, in that transition. And towards the end of the journey of this transition of schooling, they need something between a teacher and a job trainer. And so those are the two things that I think are they're most intuitive and thus that are easy to cover. The other thing, the third thing is this, again, this, this life of the mind, this love of learning and this pursuit of knowledge, even wisdom. In any event, coming back to this, this idea of continuity, the, the new, the young, they need to take the torch. They need to keep the game going. They need to inherit our world, good and bad. And in refusing to follow Arendt, we refuse to see the problem and lose a sense of our duty to solve it perpetually. We, are, we all have to be invested of solving the problem that if we don't renew the world, we ruin it. And if we ruin it for ourselves, we're also ruining it for the next generation too because they can't just create a new world like out of thin air as gods okay so do we love them enough to continue civilization and let them have the experience of civilization that we've enjoyed or are we just so derelict and neglectful that almost to make a political point to ourselves we're willing to just you know uh to let the world burn so to speak and that is just so obviously not a, a loving disposition towards the young. They need, like, they deserve their chance to continue this fragile experiment of civilization as opposed to, you know, life in the state of nature. And if we really love them, we will not test that. We won't play with that. We won't risk that. We have to maintain that civilization and order and culture are fundamentally better than the just the chaos of the state of nature, of just mere survival. So I suggest here that in refusing to follow Locke, we double down on reward at the exclusion of punishment. And by being too selective in what is enforced or reinforced, we miss every chance. So the idea here is that all we're supposed to do is just to always reward things that are good, but we've lost the confidence to to punish or to, to disincentivize unwanted behavior. And the sense is that you kind of need both working together um, because they each increase the other's effectiveness. 
but we're largely scared of our own power as teachers to punish and to reward. And Rife, Philip Rife, um, encouraged popular contempt for all interdicts. Rife didn't actually do this, this is just Rife's point. This is kind of the, the Freudian hangover, that you should never say no to a child, because if you say no, then they're going to get a complex in the psychological sense. And so this popular contempt for all interdicts, that any rule that says anything that you can't do has to be you know, ignored. And again, we just always have to say yes. And that this reaches a fever pitch that burns up all educative potential to civilize and acculturate young people. Arendt. Back to Arendt. Those endowed with authority were the elders, the Senate, who had obtained it by dissent and by transmission, tradition, from those who had laid the foundations. And so, if we tell them that they need to recreate or remake the world, they will regard the world as a hostile force, as something bad. And they will feel the crippling weight of the world, and they will burn out with anxiety or fold with depression. Or perhaps even more controversially, is the mental ill health crisis really a problem for medical science? Or are, the, are there ideas that are being expounded that would cause any healthy person from any generation to feel like something is deeply wrong with the world? And if they can't change it, they're a failure. This would, this would certainly be, I think, an unintended consequence of social engineering. Again, it's, it's probably meant with the best intentions, or it may not be, but in either event, there's something wrong with the world, and it's your job to succeed, and you better not fail, because you're not going to inherit this world, so you better create your own better world. And if you feel like you don't know how to do that, well, that, that would certainly be understandable from any reasonable perspective. But this is the danger of any kind of, you know, radical revolutionary kind of thinking in Western education. That I guess that, that there's a, a, a hard left perspective that it's so dug in that well, even if the young people fail to create a new world, um, you know, at least they won't continue this one. And so maybe there's a thinking that the safety net here is that, you know, in the end, they'll just something different will exist and that, that it will have to be better. And how, how misled and short-sighted that, that is. What drives any counterculture is someone saying what you can't do. That's an interdict a rule of what you won't do, that you abide by. What do we tell them as common cultural practice that can have deleterious effects? You can do anything. Maybe they want to do something that may not rise to meet that grandiose phrasing. Okay, we tend not to prepare people for 
again, for taking on a modest role in continuing the world. We want to tell everybody that, you know, that they've got some uh, incredible destiny. Um, but it's okay just to to work hard and to work well and be a good citizen. And there's something almost too overselling. It's too grandiose in what education is trying to tell everybody. Also, in this new uh, thinking about not extending the world, not renewing the world, um, that the young, they inherit nothing. You inherit nothing, which is the same as, you know, we're not going to, we will transmit nothing, thus you will inherit nothing. It could be interpreted a number of ways um, that we have no confidence in what, in the value of what we could transmit because, you know, we have no faith in the world as it is. It could also be interpreted to mean, to the young, that, um, well, that we don't want them. And so that's why we don't invite them, that, that we just don't see them as being worthy of transmission, that it's not really that we don't invite them to renew the world because we really think the world is so bad. It's just that we don't want to invite them in particular uh, because we don't see them as being worthy of this transmission that was still transmitted to us. We inherited it from those who transmitted it to us. And on and on backwards it goes. Transmitting, inheriting, transmitting, inheriting. Then all it takes is one generation just to say, nope, we're not gonna we're not gonna transmit this, and thus you're not going to inherit it, and and that's that's it. The the I mean the only saving grace is that it can still be accessed through the texts, right? Just without any guidance. But certainly there's this concern of existential cultural death. And, you know, and most of what's happening in education is just trotting out a lot of slogans. Empty nostrums. Again, thinking again of Neil Postman here of the, the first and second curriculum. Not focused on or less concerned with truth or facts, the reporting and a commitment to pay the price for unpopular but important news. And that's akin to teacher-centeredness. That there's a really interesting connection here between what's happened in education or is happening to education as a parallel with the media, with news media and, and journalism. Right? That the subjective over the objective, for example... Okay, once again, education is the point at which we decide whether we love the world enough to assume responsibility for it, by the same token, save it from ruin, which, except for renewal, except for renewal, the coming of the new and young, sorry, would be inevitable. And education, too, is where we decide whether we love our children enough not to expel them from our world and leave them to their own devices, 
nor to strike from their hands their chance of undertaking something new, something unforeseen by us, but to prepare them in advance for the task of renewing a common world. And then one last paragraph here that touches on this very same quote again, but this is a secondary source. Education is about many different issues, but in the first instance, it is about the exercise of adult responsibility. As Hannah Arendt, one of the leading political theorists of the 20th century, reminds us, education is the point at which we decide whether we love the world enough to assume responsibility for it. These days, it is easy to overlook our responsibility as adults for the education of young people. Society continually communicates the warning, keep out. Other people's children are not your business. The task of educating children has been outsourced to the care of curriculum experts and pedagogues. And education is frequently represented as a discrete, specialized activity that relies on their expertise. Of course, it is that. But education is also more than that, much more than that. More than an activity that can be left to the care of a small group of professionals. As Arendt suggests, it is through education that adults ensure that the younger generation are prepared culturally, morally, Okay, so that wraps up Hannah Arendt. Thank you very much for listening. Okay, so that wraps up Hannah Arendt. Thank you very much for listening.